Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. Professor Julian May is a director of the Center of Excellence in Food Security at the University of the Western Cape. Professor May, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon and thank you for inviting me. So, Professor May, I mean, I started with a, a really, my, my, my heart is quite heavy looking at what we see around us. The truth of the matter is, Professor May, we are not seeing the relationship between what the country actually has and what eventually lands on the tables of people. There is, there's a disconnect there, isn't there? There is. It's a disconnect that we've had for a long time, but certainly the last couple of months have made that very evident and very stark. So how, how bad is the situation from what, what you're seeing? Uh, we don't, the problem is we don't really know. It's very difficult to collect information at this stage other than the kinds of things that you mentioned in your opening remarks. Mm. We know we're seeing more and more people saying that they are desperate for food. And we know while hunger was an issue in South Africa in the past, we never experienced the desperation of countries, uh, our neighboring countries. So things have definitely deteriorated. Many people have lost jobs. Many people are no longer able to afford even the most basic of food. The actual statistics, that's difficult to tell. It's tricky because some of what we have learned in the past couple of years is that South Africans are food insecure even if they have some sort of a job. So there are people who wake up and go to some sort of a job. It may not necessarily be a secure job, but they're doing something. And those people, actually, some of them go to bed hungry. Right. Now that we've, all, we've had that. Uh, the stats are safe figures up until the st- that the COVID was showing that we had seen a decline in people experiencing hunger. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the particular strangeness about South Africa's food insecurity. Mm. Um, we are described, we were described as being food secure, meaning that we had, we produced enough food or we had enough money to import food when we had a drought and we lost our maize harvest. Okay. Um, so that was one aspect of food insecurity. We knew we were food insecure in that we have a large share of our population who are unemployed. Um, but nonetheless, we have a, one, Africa's biggest social grants program. Mm-hmm. And that meant that even then, people who were unemployed were able to get some, some source of money to be able to put some food on the table. And then lastly, and this was all the irony in South Africa, we have a problem of food insecurity in that healthy food is more expensive than unhealthy food. And as a result, we've had a problem of overweight and obese people. It's about the quality of the diet. I was actually going to ask you that part in the sense that to what extent do we know about nutrition so so we know that people are eating something and and psychologically there's this you, the idea that you are consuming something but consuming a bag of i don't even know what these things are called but uh, like what they look they look like chips or whatever it is but a yeah. bag of of stuff that is just nothing but colorants and stuff it's not even potatoes and you're consuming that and children consume that a lot in fact in south africa what we've seen is not quite a meal, but there's this the idea that people are eating, but they're not quite being fed proper nutritionist food. Yeah, so that we, we, we in, in, in food security, we talk about people consuming empty calories. Yes. So all they're eating is calories. There's no nutrients. There's no vitamins. Um, and yes, that, that was very much the characteristic of South Africa's food insecurity prior to COVID. People would fill up. And so they would say when asked they're not hungry, yeah. it's because they've eaten, they've eaten a, a, a big bag of, of, of those, of those, of those crisps. Um, 
but I'm not sure that even that's happening now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the groups which I'm particularly concerned about are those who relied on very informal ways of getting an income, people mm. who were selling fruit on street corners, people who were begging for money, people who relied on charity. Um, I think that all of those ways of scraping together something to live on have now have st- stopped over the lockdown and some of them are not recovering. Well, you and me both, because what I've also read up is that there's a category of people who have not received that three. So they, they applied for the 350. And let me tell you, I would be exactly the same. They applied by chance for the 350 because they've lost income and they were maybe a hawker. And yet in the, at, uh, at the same time, they also took a chance and applied for UIF because they would kind of categorize themselves as running a business. I mean, it's as, small, as small as it is, but hey, I was running a business and maybe there's, there's some relief there. They didn't qualify for either. And that's a concern because now Sasari is saying we're going to have to go back and reassess those because maybe there is a way of, of getting them to qualify for something, but they are in no man's land right now. Right. And for those people, then they've had to look for other ways to try and find food. If they are lucky, they've been in communities where civil society, where NGOs have stepped in and provided food parcels. And uh, I, I attended a meeting recently where it, the, 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 um, the number of food parcels provided by civil societies far exceeded those that were provided by, by any level of government. Sure. So th- those are the lucky communities. That's where there have been organizations that have been able to step in and, and do, as you were saying in your opening remarks, somehow make, provide a short-term solution to get people through the, the worst of the lockdown so far. Professor- but you asked... Go, go ahead, Professor May. You asked the question about what next, and I, I, I fear that the worst, unfortunately, is yet to come. Um, we've gotten through the lockdown, but we've taken, I think many people's incomes have taken a huge hit. Um, the capacity to be able to give to others must be very stretched in many communities by now. And now we're, we're going to start experiencing more and more people falling ill. Hmm. Professor May, there is a category that we don't ever talk about in this conversation, and that's the middle class. Um, And we know that the middle class, particularly in this country, is so volatile. They live from paycheck to paycheck. So they, they live behind these amazing walls, nice new car, but they are living from paycheck to paycheck. And... And I wonder whether there's a conversation to be had there because they are also not going to be the people who are going to raise their hands at first when asked, do you need help? But those people right now are without an income and actually possibly hungry. I don't know if you've seen the status of figures for the decline that was experienced in the food and beverage sector. And this was in March alone. It was something like nearly a third of a drop in a drop of income, a quite remarkable figure. So for those people that were involved in tourism, in guest houses, running restaurants, they've had an almost total loss of their income. Mm. Now, critically, as you say, some of them will start to, by now they would have exhausted their savings. Um, They're going to find it difficult to restart their their businesses. And critically, they employed others. And they employed others now that are going to be in, in a really desperate state. So I think it's correct to point out the role of the middle class. I think we also have to recognize that for many of South Africa's new middle class, the black middle class, mm. people are going to have to be supporting other family mm. members. So incomes are going to be even further stretched. So there is a vulnerable category there. Hmm.
Professor May, from, from the studies that you've conducted, I mean, what's the, is there a silver lining? What is the silver lining? There are a few things that are emerging. One of the things that we have always wondered about is why is it that South Africans have never really organized around food? Mm. Um, in many countries, there are food charters where governments, civil society and private sector reach agreements to make sure that food is affordable and that food is healthy. We've not had that capacity. But right now, there's a deep interest in food. There's people trying to grow their own food. There are um, people planting food on vacant land in townships. Um, right now, there is actually the opportunity to mobilize around food and to ensure that we have a, a more sustainable and a safer and a healthier food system in the future. So to me, that's one silver lining. We're taking a deep interest in food inequality right now. That food basket that was announced, the zero-rated food basket, did it have any impact? The, ultimately, some of those decisions have not yet been made. Um, I think there would be some benefit from having a zero-rated food basket. It would reduce marginally the cost of some foods. Remember, many are already zero-rated. Mm. I think we maybe would find it more helpful to find ways of having food which is um, shelf stable, which can be dry, which is dry and which remains healthy. Mm-hmm. So perhaps there are other kinds of foods that we should be looking at to provide to people. Mm-hmm. More critically, I would like to see the food to school feeding programs open, extended, um, covering a, a wider range of people. And the last group, which I think we really should be deeply concerned about are women who are in their third trimester of their pregnancies um, and also women who have just recently had children. Um, the first thousand days of a child's life are criti- of critical importance and uh, the, the four-month lockdown is a very long time in the development of a child, whether it's in the womb or already born. There, you know, our policies are great in some ways and in some ways also quite hindering. Um, I've had a few people who say, well, we were trying to feed people and, and sure, they didn't do their homework. We were trying to feed people, maybe opened a soup kitchen or whatever. We were shut down because, you know, we're not supposed to. We're not regulated to do that. So in, in, in some ways, you have people who really get the fact that my neighbor is hungry and I want to do something. But then regulations make it difficult for those people to actually be part of the solution. What's your comment on that? I think we've introduced too many um, unimportant regulations and have failed to actually maintain the most important regulations. Um, what we know from the rest of the world is that social distancing matters, that wearing face, wearing a mask will matter, that proper sanitation matters. We don't need to focus on specific actions to be able and prevent those from taking place to be able to ensure that people are doing the proper, the proper procedures for COVID. They really aren't very complicated things to do. And so I think many of those regulations we could do away with and rather focus our attention on the message um, wash your hands, wear a face mask, don't be in close proximity to someone else. Um, those, those I think, would have a greater impact than worrying about who's, in, who's surfing, who's walking, who's uh, um, providing food and what kind of package. Let's take those calls, uh, Professor May, if you don't mind, 891 For everybody who wants to engage with Professor May, we've discussing, we're discussing food insecurity and uh, just the staggering numbers of people who, who present themselves as now going to bed hungry. Romeo is calling us from uh, Johannesburg. Good afternoon, Romeo. Good afternoon, and uh, the Professor, both of you, how are you? We're well, thanks. Go ahead. 
Okay. I just wanted to ask a question because I heard the professor saying that uh, um, <coughs> the waste is yet to come. Considering that uh, the region is already experiencing drought, uh, food is beginning to show the signs of shortage uh, to some other uh, countries. And uh, with this, uh, following the this problem of COVID-19, what measures do you think, uh, Professor, the government should do? Isn't it not that this is the right time now for the region to come together and to start uh, taking water from Zambezi River and uh, possibly sharing tanks within the uh, Sadak regions to start exercising irrigation um, uh, for food during the time of like this? Um, when droughts are affecting, because we can see that people are likely to lose jobs, and already some signs of some other companies are closing due to the COVID uh, problem. Professor May, did you get all of that? Yes, I did. So, infrastructure projects like moving water would be quite slow to implement and quite costly. What we could think about rather is how do we work with a country, say, like Zimbabwe? which has had a very good track record of being able to grow food in the past. How do we, how do we rebuild and assist in, 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 in Zimbabwean agriculture so that we can import food from our neighbors rather than trying to import food from very distant countries? When we have a drought, we tend to wind up having to import maize, our, our staple food, from countries like Uruguay or the Ukraine, where, in fact, we could get those far closer to home. So I think those would be the kind of trade agreements, the kind of collaborations between governments that would work better. As you say, we do need to be mindful about um, if drought is going to happen and where that drought is going to happen, that could have very dire consequences at a time when the country really isn't able to afford to manage um, and, and deal with a drought. So, so, so I think you're right to be looking so far forward. Some of these uh, agreements, are, are they totally based on economics? I mean, what you've just highlighted now, what what are the reasons why we wouldn't look to Zimbabwe, for instance, to, to get maize? I think economics, I think, sometimes tangled up in the politics of, yeah. of, of the past um, and sometimes tangled up with the politics, the internal politics of a particular country. Mm. But uh, it's something which as the Afri- leaders in Africa really need to come together so that we're able to develop our broader African food system and not rely only on our own our own countries and rely on, on the food systems of, of countries that are, are distant from us. Mm. Sheikh, you're calling from Newcastle. Good afternoon. Hello, Sheikh. Hello, hello. Hi, welcome to the show. Go ahead. Uh, ma'am, I'm just uh, I'm listening to the radio and I've been wondering uh, the food shortages and things. Uh, what about the poor that need food? Obviously, I've seen many of these major supermarkets uh, throwing away food, which which people can consume. Why don't an organization get to them and ask them to donate it so it can go out to people that are starving? Mm. That's my question. Thanks. Thank you very Thanks, much. Bye. Professor May, it's, it's part of the, the regulations that we were discussing to say, you know, we, we've entangled ourselves in so many other regulations, even before COVID, where you're just not allowed to give uh, somebody cooked food and, 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 you know, it's just not allowed. Yes, and, they, and they are, there are sometimes good reasons for that. The Listeria outbreak that we experienced some years ago was, it was showed the vulnerability that we have to food, to, to food safety problems. Yes. However, 
there are organizations that have been involved in getting food that's either it's past its sell by date, but it's not past its use by date. And yes. so those those do exist. Food Ford in the Western Cape is doing something like that. Um, people have been making use of some of those ways of doing things. There are food banks that also um, take food that is um, damaged, but then are able because they have the expertise, are able to to reprocess that food so that it then can be made available to people. Um, we also have to be mindful when doing that is that for, for many people there is an anxiety that they, they, they're kind of receiving damaged goods. Mm. They, they're getting second best. Mm. So I think we also have to do that in a way that's respectful to, to those that are, are, are in need so that they, they don't have that kind of feeling of, of getting the costs off of the wealthy. I mean, I hear you, and and I think everybody gets that. It's it's when you see, let's say, from a baker where they there are rolls that were not sold, and they just can't give those away. That I think sometimes people feel a little bit like you know helpless. And and as we talked earlier, things really have fundamentally changed. That we we now do in fact have a situation where there are people that can expect not to eat today. Mm. Um, we, we, in, in some of the research we've done, we, we, we came across what we refer to as foodless households. And that's, a, that's, those are families that wake up and there literally is nothing in the house to eat. And each day they have to go out and try and find something to eat. And that's, um, that, 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 that can only have gotten worse in this period. I, I almost feel like there's got to be a, a will to, to find a bit of a balance. So I feel terrible when I see um, a, a man who's trying to recycle from my dustbin himself picking up food from the dustbin, whereas I could have given that man a sandwich. And I know I'm not the expert in trying to be, I don't know if my food is contaminated or not, but there is something psychologically wrong with seeing that, even though you know you could have probably given him, uh, you know, a sandwich that was freshly prepared. All right. So again, in in many countries, people are are, are able to separate out the, 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 what they throw away to make sure that if it's if it's potentially usable to someone else, then it, then 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 you put, you package it separately. So it's recognizing that in fact what you what you are throwing away may well be of use to someone else. Um, but your response, I, I was very taken with your comment right at the beginning of the interview when you introduced the topic and you described yourself as seething, mm. and I think that's perhaps something which. Not enough of us are doing that. This is a time where we really need to be asking why, yeah. how did we wind up in this situation and, and what can we do about it? Yeah. Professor May, I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Uh, Professor Julian May. And this conversation is about food insecurity and food security in this country. I just think that something's got to give. And I think many of us are not are not raged enough about what we're seeing. If 32 billion rand has gone to corruption has been stolen, siphoned out of our economy. When we are seeing the kind of desperation that we're seeing, a lot more of us need to be raising our voices and saying something has got to give and it has got to stop and we've got to hold people accountable. It's just simply unacceptable. 1.30, let's go to Utsi Lesaku for the latest in headlines.